Hello and welcome to the Total Quidditch podcast, a place where we talk to the people who make Quidditch what it is and give them an opportunity to share their stories and experiences of the sport. I'm Fraser and I'll be your host. We've been away on a little unscheduled break for the past few weeks, but we're back to finish off Series 2. Now on to Episode 19. We're heading over to Vancouver, British Columbia, to interview our first Canadian guest today. This person has certainly had a very Quidditch experience, to say the least, having thrown themselves into literally and sometimes physically into all sorts of opportunities that the sport has to offer. He's played as a seeker and chaser for Canada and Western Canada on the global stage. He's refereed in a World Cup final, travelled across many countries to play and volunteer at tournaments. He's become a supreme fantasy Quidditch GM and held roles within organisations such as the Quidditch Post and the IQA. He's a true jack of all trades, and it's a pleasure to have him join us for this episode. Austin Wallace, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, it sounds like a lot when you put it that way. I uh, <laughs> appreciate the opportunity to, to come and chat for a bit. Yeah, you certainly packed a lot into your, your time playing Quidditch. So, uh, cool. Yeah, it's great to make this happen so the, with an eight-hour time difference. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely got obsessed early, and uh, it didn't let up for a number of years. So... Uh, happy to uh look back for a bit sure sure that's what we're here for uh so i guess in the present how, how are you doing what's uh sort of pandemic life over in canada like oh i'm doing honestly uh more great than i should all things considered uh you know canada's definitely had an up and down time um among the non-covid zero countries we're doing better than a lot but that doesn't mean we're doing great and, you know, things are starting to turn around. Um, I'm getting my vaccine tomorrow, so I'm super excited about that. Nice. Um, but yeah, I'm just super grateful and lucky that I've, uh, me and my partner both work in uh, industries where we can work from home and there's no issues. Um, so yeah, um, all things considered, pandemic-wise, doing pretty good. Definitely miss Quidditch, though. I needed the break, a little burnt out, but I'm, I'm back to the point where I'm excited to play again. Yeah, for sure. The... I think yeah having that time off has certainly helped people but at this point i know a lot of people my, my teammates included myself are yeah really itching to get back into playing again yeah 100 percent um you know i'm i've uh stepped away from most of my i think all of my volunteer positions now and i'm just excited to go back as a player and just like play and just be good at that yeah exactly pure, pure and simple enjoyment of the game yeah so going back to the very start it's always a good place to be. Uh, how did you get into Quidditch? And what was your athletic background coming into the sport? Uh, I, I enjoyed sports and I was always into sports, but I never was any good at them. Uh, I never had a sport that really fit what I was good at. Um, you know, hockey as a Canadian was mandatory, but I couldn't skate well enough. Uh, soccer, my dribbling, like just, you know, not enough coordination. Baseball, same thing. Hand-eye coordination for the, like, the, the hitting the bat to the ball, not good enough. Like, everything, everything was, there was just not, didn't quite work. I was way too small for football, um, just physically. And so um, my sort of, the way I took my sports interest was through sort of the analytics side. Um, I was, like, super into hockey analytics specifically and, like, fantasy fantasy hockey i wrote and managed a fantasy hockey prospects site for a while um i almost built my degree around analytical sports management and like almost interned for the canucks and then interviewed for like a data engineering spot for the maple leafs 
Um, so that was sort of my my path before. I was definitely like hockey obsessed until I met Quidditch. Uh, and by meet Quidditch, I mean dragged into Quidditch where uh, there was a couple of years where I had some classmates that were like trying to recruit me. And I really thought it was just Harry Potter LARPing. I really thought that it was just people running around casting spells and I was not interested. All the power to them. That's cool. Not my thing. Good for you. But like one day as I was biking by like their triad day and like third year, I was like, you know what? I'll go once. And holy shit, I had never looked back. It was like the best sport I've ever played. Immediately felt like this is something that I could like do and do well. Um, and yeah, I just loved it. So that's sort of my 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 initiation. Mm, I think that's that's really interesting. And obviously, you talked about the analytics and kind of what you got on to do within Quidditch. Um, I guess that's probably helped inform that. But I think a lot of people can really relate to that idea of having tried a few sports before and kind of enjoyed them, but not really felt like they really belonged and they were talented at them. And then turning to Quidditch and going, do you know what? This is something where I can I can really make a name for myself and really excel at. Um, that's certainly what you found with Quidditch. Yeah, and that's sort of been my personality in a lot of things is like, you know, as soon as when I if I find something that I want to do, like I like I'm in, then I'm like all the way in. Uh, yeah, I definitely went like both feet in, like, you know, tra- training hard, like volunteering, like pretty much immediately. Like I decided that Quidditch is like just like awesome and I'm going to like go for that. So that was starting out at... Uh... UBC, your uh, your college where you played for the team there, the UBC Thunderbirds. Yeah. Uh, so during your time there, UBC competed within the Quidditch Canada system, but also within US Quidditch as well in their competitive season. Um, you even attended a few US Nationals or USQ World Cups, as they were previously known back in the day. So I guess what was it like as a Canadian team competing back then, sort of both with can- Canadian teams? And with American teams in that sort of competitive system, and how does playing in America compare with playing in Canada? What's what's the difference in the level there? I was really uh, first of all when I went into UBC Quidditch, the Thunderbirds, we were only USQ, and I didn't have sort of as a rookie didn't have knowledge of what that meant versus Quidditch Canada, right? Like you're just going to go play and go in tournaments, um, but just like the the biggest difference for me was that, like, USQ Nationals World Cup was just an, like, transcendent experience. Just an amazing, like, energy. Like, having 80 teams for World Cup 8 and just, like, being a part of, like, 80 competitive teams in one spot was just, like, an incredible experience that really just doesn't compare to, like, your usual 6-8 to eight team tournaments. Um and yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, it was wild getting to play Lone Star and losing like 220 to 20. Uh, you know, <laughs> most enjoyable trouncing of my life for sure. Um, just like, yeah, that that whole experience was excellent. Um, honestly, we were not stoked to go to Canada, um, to Quidditch Canada solely. I fought that for like a good year and went through a couple of... Uh, we were going to actually stay. I had like a proposal that was like tentatively accepted by a couple of uh, this was sort of the, the year of turmoil where Dante uh, was uh, USQ executive director for all of like six months. 
and Chris Daw was Quidditch Canada's executive director for like less than a year. And um, both of them were interested in having um, UBC have sort of a, a college team in uh, the US and the club team or the graduate team go to Canada so that you develop the talent in the US. And this is like sort of, you know, people want to have that experience. But then once they are graduated and they're really good, they bring that that experience to Canada and enrich their system. Everyone thought that was great. And then the executive directors both left. Um, and the newer ones, there was some insurance issues on the US side and the Quidditch uh, Canada side just really wanted to have all their Canadian teams. So unfortunately, it didn't work out. I still think that that probably would have been better for both, both leagues. Uh, but once we're in, it was actually pretty great. Like I'm, you know, other than World Cup, other than US, US Cup, um, you know, the entire Quidditch Canada experience has been enjoyable and they've done a really good job with the volunteer base they have and just like the less resources. Um, but yeah, the, the, the level of teams is, is there are, and there were and still are teams that are in Canada that would be in bracket in, in the US for sure at, at USQ Cup. Um, obviously, I, I really don't think that any of us would have a chance of, of winning uh, USQ Cup, but like we would be uh, competing uh, in bracket uh, pretty well for sure still. Okay, that's interesting to hear. And uh, yeah, it's kind of a tricky one because obviously when Quidditch started out, America's kind of well, obviously the big superpower and all, well, kind of always has been throughout the sports history. Um, so getting a chance to play at that high level, playing against the lone stars of the world and playing against these sort of legendary teams uh, must be fantastic for not only for enjoyment, as you mentioned, going to this incredible 80-team tournament, how exciting that is, but also, yeah, in terms of developing and getting better as a team. But I was wondering, do, do you feel with the players that got to play at these USQ championships, do you feel like they've really gained from that coming into sort of playing just within Canada? Do you reckon having that prior experience has helped them? Yeah, I think that that's 100% true. You know, that's sort of what we most missed as when we when we went to, to Canada is there was no one that we could play that would crush us. There was no one that we could play that we could look up to and just be like, oh my God, that is what this sport could be. That is where we could be right now. And that's what we're going to have as our goal. And that's what we're going to aim for. There's teams that could beat us for sure. And there's teams we're competitive with. And, you know, we better go back and forth with, and we definitely still improved, but we were missing that sort of like, wow. Okay. Like this is really, really top Quidditch. This is the newest, like the top strategies, the top players, this is how they do it. This is what we can learn from. Um, and so, yeah, the people that had that experience, I think, definitely were better off for it. Of course, you, you you still get to play, I guess, like with some of the Northwest teams in the U.S., right? Yeah, for sure. I uh, love I, I love our Northwest teams like Rain City Raptors is sort of our, our closest rival team um, in Canada. Our closest rival team is in is in Edmonton, the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, but like that's that's really is our closest like competitive Quidditch Canada like consistent club team there's one more team club team in in vancouver um the viper deuce but sort of our our closest competition in canada is edmonton which is about you know 15 hours away or so 
um, and that's like the closest like big city to Vancouver East, <laughs> uh, where you know two hours south of us, three hours south of us is Rain City Raptors, who are like contenders for like elite eight spots in USQ Cup, and you know that we've always had a huge rivalry with them, just like super friendly, but like definitely competitive. Um, back when they were Western Washington University people, now they graduated as Rain City. Um, so we definitely compete with them and make each other better, and that's great. Um, and yeah, we've helped, we've been back and forth. They've had years they beat us. We've had years we beat them. Um, that's always great. Yeah, it's great to definitely keep those connections up within the US. So kind of looking back at your time with UBC, because obviously it's a pretty big chunk of your time playing Quidditch. Uh, what do you say your favorite on-pitch memories? And what would you say your favorite off-pitch memories of, of the team? Oh, there's so many. I loved our, especially our first two years, just like such an amazing team. Like just an amazing team of people and like athletes. Um, and oh, biggest memories. Oh, like a couple of our, like you honestly, both the World Cup 8 and USQ Cup 9 had so many amazing memories. Um, personally for me, um, I had a catch in each of those, a snitch catch in each of those that I like will remember forever. Uh, World Cup eight against Arkansas. Um, they, you know, we're a wimpy Northwest Canadian team. No one expected us to do much of anything really. Um, and we were showing out physically against them in a way that I don't know that they super expected this big Texas team. I am not Texas, but Southwest. Um, and, uh, Gabe Garces was a snitch. Um, I'm not sure how many of the international people will know who Gabe Garces is, but he's undisputed the best snitch ever in the U.S. Just, like, unbelievably good. Uh, and I had never snitched against anyone anything like that. He would... He's Yeah, he's 6'3", 200-something pounds, like, built, 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 and really good technique. And also a huge nerd. So he would say Hadouken when he blasted you in the chest and made you fall <laughs> down. He would do Street Fighter moves while snitching USQ Cup games. Um, Just having fun with you, basically. Yeah, he really is. Uh, he's like even in MLQ now. Like, like I mean, I think like a plurality of the games that they've had go to cap time have been because Gabe has been snitching, um, and I, <laughs> I caught him. Uh, to send to overtime, which was amazing. It was not a good catch. The only reason I caught him is because it was like, uh, depending on your unit system, about like 35 or about 100 degrees heat on that field. And we were both sweaty as hell. And he just literally couldn't grip my arm for like a half second just because we both like slid past, like literally too sweaty. Uh, <laughs> so after forever, I did I did catch him, sent to overtime. And that was just like an excellent moment. Uh, we did lose in overtime. But honestly, given that we're all like from the Northwest where it does not get that hot, uh, I was pretty proud of our performance that whole tournament. Um, yeah. And yeah, just like the, like it's still on pitch-ish, but I just remember the opening ceremony of like these 80 teams coming out and just the energy and excitement and then them singing the Canadian national anthem and like <laughs> was just awesome. That was just like, it just felt so cool as a rookie, like not knowing this thing sort of thing existed like eight months, nine months ago to being like competing in, you know, 
this huge tournament and they're playing the Canadian anthem and everyone's cheering. It's just like awesome. Um, and then World Cup nine again, we were playing Texas uh, UTSA. We we're playing UTSA, uh, and they were they were trash talking us before the game pretty hard. They were like, ah, we're never going to lose these Canadians. Get out of here. Go back. Like, like they were, you know, having some fun with it, but you know, trash talking pretty good. Um, and we came out and, uh, we held it with them. And, and then, uh, at the end of like, as I was seeking, uh, um, we were down 30 and, their seeker had gotten beat and ran back to their hoops. And as they were coming back, but before they were anywhere near a risk, I like dramatically turned towards them and said, Oh, watch out. And the snitch looked at them thinking that you were coming behind. And then I caught the snitch <laughs> just like super easy <laughs> catch. And their bench was so mad. They were so salty. Oh, it was great. They were like legitimately pissed off at me and themselves and their seeker and the snitch. Uh, so that went to overtime and then I caught like cleanly fair and square in overtime. And that was like the most sort of uh, cathartic sort of like, you know, you're big Texas boys. You can lose to some Canadians sometimes. That was just a fun, fun game for the whole team. Oh, they were so mad at me. There's a bunch of other moments. And it was just like a really, like just being the underdog sort of unexpected. We didn't make bracket either time. We were a game away from bracket uh, each time. But like, you know, it was just an amazing experience. When we were TSC, I think the biggest moment off pitch for the club was just getting that TSC status, the Thunderbird Sports Club, the like official, you know, we get funding, we get support, we get like official status, we get like, all of these like perks and you know as a quidditch team <laughs> that was unexpected um and but on pitch as tsc um the closest we got i think was we we were pretty close both years that we played as t i played as tsc but um our big our best shot was uh, nationals was really close to vancouver where i where we are in victoria um and we have a really good team um like super solid all of our most of our players rejoined from the usq times plus we had some really good rookies and one of our rookies had never played sports before he was six five two fifty zero body fat he only went to the gym that was his life he had never played a sport in his life he was high all the time he <laughs> had no cares in the world like the most talented pure athlete just in terms of like athletic ability just raw that i'd ever seen in real life in any sport that i in any team that i played on or sport in league that i played in um where like if he trained and was good he would be the best quidditch player like he would just he like i would with a pass i would i would like rock at a pass to behind the hoops and he would just one hand grab it not even juggle it or cradle it or whatever just like grip it like immediately like scrunch it in his huge hands Up like claw for, hands yeah like like just not even trying and then he would just like truck through three people and dunk um so day one of nationals uh we won like a lot 
uh, I think we lost against Valhalla, but we beat Edmonton by 12 goals, mostly off of Joey Ball, where we would clear the way and he would block three bludgers, truck three people, and score. <laughs> Joey's the rookie. Yeah. Um, and then his he went with his friends and got high on shrooms that night, <laughs> like for day two. Like he was out of his mind for the second day. He could barely like he played, but like he was not all there. And we again played against Edmonton in the semis and lost because like like we had a we had a good team. We were close. Uh, it was like we were still up like two or three. Like, we were up two and they caught. Uh, but just just Buddy couldn't. <laughs> couldn't do it <laughs> oh. oh my god i don't think he played much again after that like he i think he enjoyed it as much as he has he had the capacity to enjoy anything <laughs> but like he was he was uh that was just the most sort of unique player like if i could you know convince him to come out for storm crows and just you know try for a while oh my god He's he's my favorite. He's my favorite underrated player and like those sort of like <laughs> the best ever style thing. Like he's definitely nowhere near the best, but like I think he has like ri- the most ridiculous potential. And like even even without any training, his peak was higher than like anyone in Canada. Um, but no, that's 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 sort of the most fun fun memories for me from from UBC on a on a personal level. Okay, I guess like the earlier days with the USQ play going to those massive tournaments and yeah, just, I guess in a way, having very little expectation of yourself going against sort of these big powerhouse teams and yeah, upsetting a few, obviously that UTSA game, um, they probably didn't see coming at all, but to be able to beat a team like that, um, obviously pretty great. And then I guess, yeah, the, the second half of, uh, in Canada, obviously getting, as we said, the, uh, the recognition from, uh, college to, become like the Thunderbird Sports Club and uh, get all that extra recognition and funding and all that good stuff is, I think, what a lot of Quidditch programs are missing. So that's certainly fantastic. And then, yeah, as you were saying about, um, was, it, was it Joey? Joey. Yeah. yeah. A, a cautionary tale of um, how you can have all the potential in the world, be a fantastic athlete, but uh, narcotics, you know, they're, they're going to, they're gonna get in the way of certainly one to to think about. I, 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 the thing is though that it's not bad. Like I, he's having a great life. You know, it's not. Mm. He, he's not bothered. He, like it's good. I and I, I don't. I don't think that. Yeah, I don't think it is any like narcotics use. Like it's definitely just the like you know natural psychedelics, just living a chill time. <laughs> so I got nothing against. He's he's a great guy, and like this is mm. just you know that's how he's gonna live his life, man. You yeah, know, whatever works for him. <laughs> yeah, I think I think everyone knows at least they can think of one person within their time in Quidditch where you're like, oh man, if this person like knuckled down and they really focused and like they really committed, they could be the best player in the world or like something on those lines. I think we've all got that story at some point. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> super, super. Um, so fast tracking forward to nowadays. Um, obviously, you play for the Vancouver Stormcrows, which is a community team based in Vancouver. Uh, could you give us a taste of what it's like playing for Stormcrows in comparison to your UBC days? And also, what is the Quidditch calendar like for you in Canada? Like, what are your competitive commitments during the season? Yeah. Um, 
so storm crows um uh a good friend of mine started um sort of as a wave of us were graduating from from uvc and um it's definitely a club team with like mostly sort of veterans who have played for a while from a bunch of different areas who happen to be in vancouver um and it's i really like it um it's a good mix of chill sort of just a good team hanging out going to drinks after you know at our sponsor bar we were we're we got a sort of like initial sponsorship and name sponsorship from the vancouver storm pro um alehouse which is sort of a board game bar that's like really good sort of fit of you know nerd dumb in a couple different ways um are you named after the bar yeah oh right that's pretty cool yeah our logo is based on their logo colors based on their colors all that sort of stuff um and yeah, so we're we're definitely on the on that sort of you know fun chill you know we're gonna you know whatever, and also being really competitive like it's a really good mix of people who are supporting each other and who are uh, you know not super you know it the the intensity off pitch doesn't have to be there. It's not sort of like we're driving people. You got to come to all the practices. You got to do all this. You got this training program that we're going to do this. It's like we're going to be really competitive and we're going to do our best to win and we're going to have a good time. So I'm really happy because just like we've seen, you know, there's some teams that are mostly just on the fun side and we've some teams, there's some teams that are really just on the, you know, only competition all the time, no matter what. And like we've definitely done, I think, a good job of striking that balance. Um, and yeah, it's it's interesting. It's it's you know definitely a, a different experience because at UBC, you know, you're recruiting every year, and you have like 20, 30 rookies every year, and you know half of them last the year, and then half of the, those last the next year, and there's just like this big turnover, and you're always training, and that's the expectation. Where Storm Crows is very much just like you know you have the core people, and you get a couple more people from graduation or from people moving to Vancouver. And then you also have these like handful of like true rookies who have never seen the sport playing with like these like like uber vets, um, and just like like we've actually really enjoyed all of the rookies that we've had, and like it's just super cool that like you know you can introduce these people to the sport at maybe not in a college time in their life, but sort of later on, and they can like dive right in and really be a part of the team. Um, so yeah, definitely a different experience, and definitely like um, really enjoyable. Uh, I don't want to go back to doing multiple times a week practice at 7 a.m. because that's the only time that UBC could have <laughs> practice on the official fields. Uh, so, you know, uh, it's definitely a, a better spot for um, graduates than sort of the old model, which is that people would just hang around UBC Quidditch until they decided to retire. Yeah, that sounds like a really good mix of things. Um, and I think a lot of community teams or especially like graduate teams are really striving for that balance where they've got this outlet to keep playing outside of the sort of the collegiate system not having to train up new players like at the start of every year and occasionally obviously introducing new people to the sport which is always nice to do but that sort of annual um, I wouldn't call it a grind but that annual kind of work and effort you have to put into teaching people how to play the game, but also how the rules work, all of that. Um, and then, yeah, obviously, yeah, having the social side, and it's pretty cool. Obviously, you got that link with with the bar, and that like, you've got like 
I guess, a, a base to hang out and kind of spend your time there. Um, yeah, sounds sounds like a really good mix of things. Yeah, so, no, it's it's good. Um, the the interesting part now is going to be that I think for the first time we're going to have to actually actively recruit like a college team almost. Coming out of pandemic, I think this is going to be the case for a lot of club teams is, mm. you know, it's been a year and people some people have moved on some people are like retired some people are and you you know we had no rookies this past year because there was no quidditch and so now it's time for us to sort of step up that recruiting um and that's going to be a challenge i think for us and for all of the teams that are in a similar spot which is a lot of them yeah for sure as you kind of mentioned i think you're probably in a good position to do that recruiting because you can turn to a lot of adult players and go, yeah, we're, we're super serious about this. And we want to win and want to be the best we can be. But also we have fun together when we're not playing and we hang out together and we, we, we have these times, we make these memories and make these friendships. Um, and I think that's a really strong marketing tool when you're trying to get adults into the sport. So we, we kind of touched on it earlier. Um, you mentioned how, how far away Edmonton is uh, from Vancouver, and uh, in terms of, I guess your, I guess rivals within Quidditch Canada. Um, kind of diving into, into a bit more depth. What would you say are the big challenges to Quidditch in Canada? How significant a factor are things like geography and weather conditions when it comes to playing and also developing the sport? It's a big factor in terms of all of them. That Quidditch in Canada is. You know, it's it's remarkable that it's grown as it has when, you know, there's these pockets of activity that are separated by 20, 20 hour drives. Right. Because um, in Vancouver, we got a solid scene with uh, UBC, SFU, our, our two co- our two colleges here, plus the two club teams. And then Victoria also has a team, which is only like a three hour commute. And then down south to by like an hour is a, a college and then two hours south of that are two club teams. So there's a, a good pocket of activity in sort of the Seattle to Seattle to Vancouver area. Then, but in terms of just Canada, you know, you have you know 20 hours east is Edmonton and Calgary, who are are also a number of hours away from each other. Um, and then the next competitive team is some ridiculous 60 hour drive or something like is I don't even know how long it is a drive because it's not feasible. <laughs> it's a flight. The yep. next competitive team East is a flight away uh, in Ontario. Um, and then you have a bunch of teams, Ontario and Quebec um, and a couple of teams start trying to, you know, on and off trying to start off in between those two areas, like in, in Winnipeg, but the consistent only consistent competition um, for us is locally and then uh, 15 hours away east and then a whole flight like far like there is no you know it's it's it is a huge factor um, we really only have you know 20 teams in Canada across a, the second largest country in the entire world uh, and so it's hard to you know, and that goes up and down. There might be some more teams some years, and but there's, there, I would say, there's 20 solid teams, um, and yeah, it's it's definitely like 
impressive that that it's it's continued to grow and develop as it has um just speaks to sort of the the volunteers that have put in like ridiculous hours for for not even their own benefit over the years um alberta um i think that their success uh Edmonton, calgary has come from that they've done a really good job i think more than anywhere else in the world honestly I think they're the, the foremost in development development level Quidditch, where they've got like I think six teams or more like roughly six teams. They have two competitive teams, um, but then they have like six or so dev league teams that are low contact, uh, modified rules, um, mostly like indoors, just development, um, and they're you can you can play for both a club and development team. So they've done a really good job of having this sort of like intake into the sport through this sort of like lower competition environment so they can have a bunch of teams to play and doesn't just get stale because only these two competitive teams um so that's that's i think sort of one of the most i wish that we had that here and i wish that that was sort of more common elsewhere um but i think that's sort of how they've grown and survived and thrived along with all their use quidditch stuff um and then that's extra impressive because they can't practice outside for like six months of the year. We're really lucky in Vancouver. Canada is an ice cold wasteland and we all live in igloos and drive sled dogs, obviously. Uh, <laughs> but we have this little little pocket in Vancouver of, you know, it gets wet and dark and cold and gross, but it barely, it barely dips below freezing. Like Not we can't practice outside. Oh no, that's, that's amazing for Canada. Barely yeah. dipping below freezing is like, that's a... Uh, that's a tropics right there. Um, so we can we can practice. You know, it's a little gross. We definitely do take a, some lower activity months in like December and January where it's like getting pretty bad. But we can practice outside all year long, um, where it's actually minus thirty consistently in Edmonton in the winter in both Fahrenheit and Celsius. And so you know that's not possible. That's not happening. Um, and so they have to rent these super expensive indoor fields. And it's not as extreme in Ontario, but they still also have it drop solidly into the negatives and have to, you know, rent those fields. So um, it's a it's an interesting juxtaposition because the college season is from September to April. And that's sort of how the whole Quidditch Canada League still revolves around. But for a large chunk of that, it's really not a good time to be playing an outdoor sport. It really isn't. Uh, in Canada, and then there's less activity in the summer when it is a great time to be playing. <laughs> um, you know, it's a you know definitely definitely some some significant uh, challenges in in Canada for sure. Uh, but we're still we're still still going strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely something that's good to talk about. And I think personally, I've always had quite an interest in geography and got a really understanding. The layer of the land and understanding different situations, especially coming into Quidditch. Um, I think that really puts it in perspective about uh, the distances between teams and, as you mentioned, sort of the commitment the volunteers and the people in the sport have. Where I imagine competitive play is pretty sporadic as a result if you're traveling several hours um, to get to somewhere, or as you said, like a, a plane journey, something just for the weekend. So you've got to be kind of pretty persistent in terms of, well, firstly, enjoying like practicing and like just training for Quidditch. Um, and then obviously then committing to 
traveling a very long way to play um, and kind of getting the most out of that experience. Yeah, I would say that I average in like a real Quidditch season, probably like four trips to to four of those 20 hour trips to Edmonton, Alberta and Calgary. And they average four trips to like the Vancouver area. Um, and then it's just a lot of a lot of local tournaments. Um, at Stormcrow, like UBC and Stormcrows is the more competitive teams. We've definitely tried always to go as much as we can to sort of travel tournaments. And as Stormcrows, just in that same situation where there's no one that's really in Canada that will like crush us, that's sort of accessible. Um, Valhalla would be really good competition. That's sort of the you know historically uh, top team in in the east although that's sort of up for debate now and um but the um that's unreasonably far so yep. if we're going to go for a big travel tournament we've actually we've gone to like in the last year before the pandemic storm crows went to um san francisco we went to arizona we went to oregon we went to washington uh, we traveled more in the States. It's just sometimes it is a struggle to get team like tournaments to be like, hey, yeah, you can totally play with us, even though you're not going to count for, you know, real standings points. Um, USQ and QC have done as about as good as they can at making those games count for games played. But obviously, you know, there's it's still not the same um, and there's some extra complications. So we just appreciate the tournament directors that do uh, let us uh, Canadians come down and play. Yeah, for sure. I think there's, there's certain teams like yourselves who can access the US and I guess probably in Toronto as well, right? They could come down to in across the border and play some teams over there, but not every team in Canada has that access. No, they? no, we're definitely super lucky. And not only do we not have that access, but for a team that doesn't have huge school funding, it's just cost prohibitive as a college student to be doing that sort of travel. And so, yeah, it's definitely a case where it's it it can be difficult and it is just a lot of local play and we've done as much as we can to you know there's a couple of volunteers in vancouver who've really uh, spearheaded like making that even better uh one of the most important ones named david saint germain who's created this uh the vancouver quidditch league sort of this is it's uh, a weekly non-team affiliated uh sort of drop in and play style thing where anyone who's casual or experienced just drops in and there's like a, a draft the day of just to like make two teams or three teams and you just sort of you know play for uh, a few hours in the evening um in a low contact um sort of modified rules uh setting and i think that's actually been really good for for the area um, to draw on new people and to give people sort of different experiences than the just same sort of same tournament that ends with the same standings and the same like people every like couple weeks every yeah it sounds months. like a positive thing to do because i know when i've talked to various kind of new people especially adults they go into the sport they're like oh great how do i start playing and they go oh well there's this team and uh oh our tournament is in this city several months away um and you and you kind of turn around and go oh yeah, we've got a tournament in Edmonton. Yeah, just casually go over there. And it's <laughs> quite a big commitment for people to make, but be able to play casually, um, plays like pickup games. Um, it's definitely a good way to entice people in and then they can commit to these more uh, more serious and official tournaments. 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so in terms of the guests we've had on the pod so far, you're probably the first player we've had who spent a considerable time of their career as a primary seeker for their team, particularly around the 2016, uh, around that time. Uh, I guess what drew you to the position and how do you approach like a tight snitch range game? So how do you prepare yourself mentally and physically for those high pressure moments? Yeah. Um, when I entered the sport, the UBC definitely needed a seeker. And I thought that was the coolest thing. Uh, I was like sprint wrestling, like, you know, <laughs> just go at it. And I ended up being like reasonably good at it, mostly through like a lack of care about my body <laughs> and a willingness to uh, just drive myself into the ground multiple times, many, many times. Um, and so I ended up getting to the point where uh, after my second year, I was able to make uh, Team Canada as a seeker. Um, I tried as like a combo seeker chaser, but I ended up being a primary seeker. And what's really interesting about that year was that that was the year that Team Canada had three pure seekers who did nothing else the entire tournament. And they, the strategy was that they would have like the three lines with the 18 people, and then the three of us would just take t- small shifts and just sprint at the snitch constantly because we did nothing for the 18, first 18 minutes, and you would just go, go, go. Um, and so, yeah, as a as a seeker, I think my style evolved from, you know, as a rookie, it was really just, let's just be more athletic and determined and aggressive and just, like, let's go to, like, yeah, let's, you know, think about the moves, think about, you know, pop and go, think about swim moves, think about how can I set up a seeker to uh, a snitch to expect one thing and then I do the other. Um, and that's sort of been what I've learned most from the, the seekers in my area is, and then I've tried to pass on now that I'm more experienced is, you know, there's, there's that, that mix where you can go and there is, a, there is value to actually mixing it up where you go from, you know, surgical, precise, you know, cerebral, let's set this up, let's do this, let's do this. And then mix that up every once in a while with just a bull rush where you're just like, let's go. Like, just we're gonna, we're just gonna sprint at him or them, the snitch, and just, you know, we're gonna win. Um, and that was interesting at Team Canada because I think that all the way that that was set up, you know, you can't just go for a full sprint as a, as a seeker on a club team because, or on a college team, because it's unlikely that you have like three people who are willing to be like full seekers yeah but on team canada you have three top level seekers who have done nothing else all game and have infinite energy and are only going to play in 30 45 seconds shifts so it really is like a dead sprint like you know you, you see seekers they'll jog back to the hoops catch their breath think what they're doing jog back to the snitch think what they're doing and then like make some moves where in canada it was like really it was a dead sprint every time they were beat to the hoops, dead sprint back to the seeker, and then you do your thing. Um, and so, yeah, um, I actually, that, I did not catch a legal, uh, a single snitch in 2016 World Cup. That was actually a little bit of a rough time for me. <laughs> I did my best, and, you know, I caught a number of snitches, but they were all called off for 
mostly bullshit reasons. Sorry for the, <laughs> pardon the French. Uh, there was a couple of them that were called off for legit reasons, but there was a couple of refs, and this was actually like a much discussed topic afterwards. Was the the standard of 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 refing and and hand hand uh, hand fighting um, for European head referees and snitch referees was very different than in Canada. Um, so anytime that I went for a move where I went, let's say like left hand in, went for a grab and, you know, tugged for the, the tugged for the snitch, didn't grab it and then switched hands and went for the right. Even if I disengaged my left hand before my right hand made any contact, um, I would get, I got called off multiple times for using two hands, which isn't actually in the rule book. Despite me telling the referees that that's not going to help. <laughs> <laughs> two hands, it's not, if I do a two-handed wrap, if I wrap the snitch, that is a penalty. But yep. two hands is not interfering with the snitch. Impeding the snitch is the thing to call it off. But um, um, referees in Europe seem to have a very consistent understanding that any use of both hands, even for a moment, was in and of itself a reason to call off a snitch. Uh, and honestly, at, at World Cup, I was most that was actually sort of the end of my career as a primary seeker because I saw specifically one of my Canadian fellow teammate seekers named Alex Naftel, um, who is an incredible seeker. His body control and some of the other people snitch at seekers I saw, their ability to kinesthetically be aware of where their body parts are at high speed while jumping and execute these like pre-planned like body motion precise body manipulation movements at full sprint is just incredible like i don't i really don't think that i can do that like that's not that, that is not within like my physical ability no matter how much i train i don't like you know i can never be the top seeker because i just can't do that i don't think many people can and it was just really impressive to watch true top seekers you know, we have some good players and some good snitches in north in the Northwest, but we also have a bunch of snitches that are just doing their best and that I can just catch by, you know, a couple of basic moves and being an athlete. That doesn't really the case in in, in Europe and my work moves didn't really work as well. And that was sort of when I realized that, you know what, I can be a good seeker, but I'm going to refocus and try and be a top chaser keeper because uh that sort of i think where it really cemented was we were um we had an amazing tournament um i i think that you might you know want to get into this a bit later but yep. um at the very end in the in the fourth place game after we'd already been kicked out we were doing really well against um the uk uh for uh the bronze medal match uh and well we were doing okay and we caught the snitch i think to win like pretty early but then they called it off and we were not happy with that and then the wheels just fell off like they just fell off and we got crushed like i think that i think that the uk won by like 100 points or something or 100 and something points by the end um and the three of us are hella fresh, just, you know, sprinting to defensive seek. I have never seen better defensive seeking by a team <laughs> in my life. We had three oh, people. Awesome. 
It was 40. Yeah, it was 43 minutes. Um, and they had lots of one on one, like lots of like uh, time they could have conceivably caught the snitch. But we were so fresh as defensive seekers. Uh, Alex Naftal, uh, w- one of our seekers would have a sort of side side stance um, to, to block. One of our seekers had a forward stance to block the, the defensive seeker. And I would face the snitch and stick my butt out. And just like use my hips to to block the and I'd look at actually I actually look at the shadow beneath my feet of the people behind me, uh, so I can see where they're gonna go and I just stick my butt out so they can't ram into me, and that's how I do it. And we would just alternate between the three of us and Cat, and they just couldn't get close um, because we were back and forth from the hoops way faster than the other team seekers because they were not as fresh. Um, but. We all, we were, we're all, like, two of us were also, like, pretty decent chasers, and the rest of our team was gassed. Like, everyone was broken, injured, and tired, and tilted, and just, like, you know, they played a really hard tournament, and, you know, we'd played, honestly, a total of five minutes for the whole tournament each. Like, five yeah. minutes of game time each, because that's all it takes, right? We, were, we had quick games, we caught the snitch pretty quick, until the end when they caught the snitch pretty quick. And so it was sort of an, a, a, a wild experience of being on the bench, wanting to go in at Chaser, honestly, and just being like, you know what, this is, no, we're going to, in the moment, we're going to do what the team wants to do. We need, we, the team needs us to be the top defensive seekers so that we can, you know, try and get back into it. But just like, I wish I could have been, that was when I was, I realized I wished I could have helped on the field, you know, actually having those fresh legs, trying to, to score. And trying to like bring it back in. So sort of after that, I realized that I wanted to rededicate myself to to the chaser seat, ch- chaser keeper side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like you really got to thought about that World Cup experience, and yeah, obviously sort of reapplied yourself. Um, but yeah, I, I always find talking about seeking. Well, I mean, I like talking about Quidditch in general. That's why why we're here. But um, I find seeking fascinating. Um, there's so many different nuances to it um both in terms of the physical side of things you mentioned people like alex naftal have got this incredible body control they can pull off these moves where they know exactly where they are mid midair and they know where the snitch is and they can make that grab um so, and obviously sprinting in there in a snitch range game um and just making some something happen out of nothing so there's the physical side of it but also the psychological side I think is massive because especially like you're, you're the only player on your team that can seek at any one given moment. So you're kind of going to yourself, but also your team, you're going, yes, like this is my time. I'm going to end the game and we're going to win this. And I'm the one who's going to do it. And when you do do that, it's fantastic. But when you don't, obviously it's, it's just like soul destroying um and yeah sort of when you're in those really tight situations as you mentioned talking about different techniques knowing what you're going to do and then executing it and then sometimes just not having the time to think and just having to do something to give yourself a chance of catching um yeah there's, there's all these like little bits of psychology which i find really interesting yeah it's such a it's 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 both it's the mo it's 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 sort of like being a pitcher in baseball or a closer where it is just you and it's sort of this but it's like 
it's such an interesting mix of being the most purely athletic where it really is just you are you more athletic can you execute your moves better can you you know one-on-one um it's not actually that but that's how it feels but where the you know you do have beater support and you have to play into the bigger game but it is the most isolated um but it's also yeah the most psychology it's the most you could totally get in your head you can totally doubt yourself you can totally imagine that like overthinking what you're going to do and just sort of hesitating or you know losing yourself and losing your your ability to actually like make a good move and instead you're just getting frustrated and just running at the snitch in the way that they want you to and so it's really is an interesting sort of mix of of uncontrolled aggression uh, and athleticism with controlled sort of you know playing the mental game and keeping yourself balanced um for me personally i really enjoy that i i find that for me in my everyday life i'm definitely sort of even keeled sort of calm sort of like you know reasonable keep i'm sort of the one to calm things down and talk things through and that i think helps me a lot as a referee uh and quidditch and and even as a keeper like that's sort of my role is like i gotta process everything and i gotta tell people where they are and that's all that but as a as a seeker it really is the one one of the few times where it really gets me and like gets to me and like you know it it does go to that place of like just full intensity just like you know tunnel vision i know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna like just go at like all no thoughts (laughs) just run no thoughts just snitch let's go um and yeah as you say like also that it is you know when the team is relying on you and you it's it's when you it's when you know that you could the only time it ever bothered me like you know you when you lose It, it really is a really complicated coin flip in some ways and sometimes the snitch just doesn't see someone you know but it's when you it's when you screw up and you know you could have caught it and yeah. then they catch it that's when it bothers you you know if they make it clean catch and you just didn't have a good opportunity and you did your best you know people i think i can live with that people can live with that but like um when the referees call something that's just not what you agree with or when you make a you know, it was right there and you just, you know, just really screwed up. That's when, and you know, the whole team loses out of a tournament because of that. It is, you know, for me, I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing and understanding where, you know, this is just a game and all that sort of stuff. But like, it is, it can be almost traumatizing for people, right? Mm. Like where you have this, you if you take it personally, where you really did let down a team's whole dream, and because you made a stupid mistake, you lost in the finals to this team and whatever, that's pretty. It's not. It's not a mentally easy position at all. No, definitely. The, it's that real mix of the the physicality, the fitness, and yeah, the psycho the psychology behind it. The you were talking about there, the kind of those moments you have where you think, oh. I really messed up. I can really think about, I think just about every seeker can think of a moment like that where they've not quite executed as they're supposed to, or they've just missed something. And you're just like these five moments. If, if you caught it, that means something completely different to what's actually happened. And yeah, yeah. Those kind of really, really fine margins that change the course of uh, a team's tournament and well, the team's history as well. Yep, 100%.
And of yeah. course, as you mentioned, while you're at the World Cup and kind of having all these legal catches and then having them called off. And I think I found with certain seekers, they take that one of two ways. Of One of them is going, oh, I've already caught this snitch. It's not being called legal, but I've already caught them. Oh, I can do it again. And then they catch them pretty soon afterwards. But then you also get other seekers who go, oh, well, I did catch them, but I only caught them because it was an illegal catch. And then they start kind of doubting themselves and they they kind of lose confidence there. So, yeah, again, just like another example of the, the psychology of the position. Yeah, so obviously we talked a lot about the 2016 World Cup in Germany and kind of your experience as secret of Canada at that tournament. Um, she obviously did pretty well at um, finished top of the rankings after day one. Um, but then finished fourth overall uh, and actually ended up pushing up eventual champions Australia really close in the semi-final. So I guess what were your takeaways from that tournament as a whole? Like, do you feel any regrets with how it turned out? I I think that was honestly a, a pretty excellent tournament. I really enjoyed it from a tournament perspective and I, I'm really proud of our team. Um, I think we showed that for a team that is super geographically spread out and doesn't have the same density as a lot of other countries that um we did yeah take we were within snitch range of australia we were first after day one um and, you know that's mostly because of snitch catch that was just <laughs> a bunch of people were first tied for first on day one other than snitch catch percentage um but you know we were up there and i think that we showed that yeah um our top players do match up with top players of other teams of other countries um you know there's some under like very underrated top Canadian players like you know one of our again I'm proud of probably the most talented person to ever play for UBC Quidditch uh his name's Cameron Cutler and uh you know nobody knows his name because he's from the northwest uh and unfortunately injuries sort of put a stop to his career for a long time pretty quick after that but he was unreal like just an incredible athlete like super shifty really good vision really good passing really good scoring very physical like especially for his size and led team canada in goals and was one of the like top like goal scorers of the tournament uh and yeah but you know he's canadian from vancouver so very few people that don't know him personally have ever heard of him um and it's just a lot of people like that like robin fortune is one that actually does have some uh some you know, name recognition, at least in the States. And, you know, she's a top player. Uh, and, like, you know, just the roster littered full of these really good but underappreciated players showed that, yeah, we're, you know, within snitch range against the eventual champions. Um, and we can hold our own against everybody. Um, um, definitely the... The seeker part was interesting, the, the, the three seekers, but it did get us every single catch in the tournament uh, when we were in range until the semis. We want, we caught everything day one. Um, and then in the semis, there's a snitch called Joker. I think it's, I don't remember his actual name, but it was called the Joker snitch because he had white face paint on. Um, yep. And uh, he had had some rocky performances that tournament um so us in australia both knew again that this would not necessarily be 
a super long game. Uh, and yeah, it was just, it, I think it was about 17 seconds. Um, uh, we never, we had zero opportunities at him. And first opportunity, first real opportunity that Australia had was just a catch. And so we were down 20 of the catch. And I'm sure that uh, with a clean one-on-one look that Naftal had caught him earlier in the day, like immediately. Um, he he just wasn't ready for the, I think people don't do the, didn't do the arm pop, one single arm by the elbow pop to, to immediate reach, the sort of Harry Greenhouse special. Yep. Um, all that often in, in Europe. And Naftal was really good at that and found that a lot of the snitches in Europe just couldn't handle it. Uh, and so I think that, yeah, if we'd even had one opportunity there, we would have been in the finals. You know, I'm at peace with it because it just really was an amazing tournament. I don't think that we would have, I, being completely honest, don't think we would have beat the States. Um, I think we could have beat Australia. I, I think it's just an amazing moment for global Quidditch that Australia beat the States. I think that was just amazing. And I'm really happy they did and they got that opportunity. But at the same time, obviously, I would have loved the chance to, to play in that finals and, and give it a shot. We wouldn't, we would have had a shot. Um, mm. But I'm, obvi- I'm, you know, if we were going to lose, yeah, I'm glad it was to Australia, who were an amazing team of people and athletes. And, and I'm so happy that they, that they showed that it's not just the U.S. You know, the U.S. is full of great people and stuff, but like they're winning most years. I'd love, I love that, that I love that Australian upset. That was just, uh, just an amazing electric moment. Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, it's very mature of you to look back at it that way and uh, be quite easy to just go, oh, we've, if we'd had our moment on the snitch, we could have won that game. We could have finished with not only a medal, but also a chance to have a go at the World Cup final, have a go at beating the US. But uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah, good to realize that and obviously the people who were there, we've talked about it previously, what the momentous occasion it was for the sport. Mm-hmm. And the best after party in Quidditch history, <laughs> honestly, for real. Oh, like that, singing, that thunder, singing Thunderstruck, uh, da, 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 drop this, like constantly was, uh, was, that was, that it was the most electric sort of after party that I've ever been a part in um, any mm. anywhere in any context in my life and yeah that was just an amazing <laughs> amazing atmosphere yeah I, I remember when they actually finally put the song on on um with the dj you could feel the floor shaking like people jumping up and down like, yeah everyone really <laughs> yeah. Like, got into it it was just mental absolutely mental yeah. um so you and i like we first got to know each other uh while we were working at the quidditch post together um which yeah. is an online publication, or at least was back in the day, uh, ran by Quidditch players for Quidditch players to share news about the sport and articles about Quidditch across the globe. So you tell us about what you did at the Quidditch Post, and yeah. what highlights and challenges you faced while you worked for them. Yeah. Uh, so it started by Lindsay Garden and Amy Marmer, um, who were volunteers for the IQA and USQ um for a long time and yeah i i you know full obsession i when i go in i go in and like you know by march of my rookie year i was ready to volunteer for something i was like you know i wanted to i came from this background where i wanted to go into like sports analytics style things and you know 
was ready to transition to sort of Quidditch as that like path. Um, and the, you know, 50 per like 40, 30 person organization at the time, I think, uh, looking for uh, C suite people, you know, realizing that maybe I could get the position, even though I'm not super qualified because Quidditch. Um, I applied to be COO of the Quidditch Post and, you know, went through an actual like interview process, uh, like a couple interviews, and I got it. Uh, me and Jack Leonard were hired on the same day for their, our first Quidditch positions, uh, our real Quidditch positions, being C- co-COOs for, for the Quidditch Post in March 2015. Um, and while we were there, we it grew all the way to like 70 plus volunteers all across the world um, producing stories and really cool content, redesigning our website from scratch a couple times. Uh, and just this amazing, diverse, sort of energetic, like, community of people. Um, it was awesome and also ended up being really hard to manage. How do you motivate people who can't ever see each other, will never make money from this, will never really advance their career unless they want to be a copy editor? Or, like, unless they're really going for that. Um, it really, you know, a lot of it, you know, how do you build that culture? How do you keep people engaged? How do you, you know, what's the balance you strike between just do whatever you want versus you signed up for this to do this much work and you're not doing it? Come on. Well, you can't do that too often because there's nothing holding them there. There's no, there is no, it's, it's really is only about the passion of volunteers and how do you cultivate that passion? Um, is is really difficult and some of the challenges that we faced all the way back then are reflected in what a lot of people have had to go through in a pandemic which is you know yeah exactly like how do you motivate and create culture without it being artificial in an environment where you never see your colleagues you never see your coworkers ever and yeah we had to deal with that like <laughs> for years uh the most difficult part you can find writers because writing is cool. You can like, you know, people people really enjoy that. You can even find editors. People like to to sort of like work with nitty gritty of the pieces. You can find designers. You can find you can find directors. You can find like people who want to pad the resume or who are like leadership sort of wanting to get more experience. You know what you can't find for a seventy person organization? Who wants to be a middle manager of <laughs> uh, online remote? Who, who, there is no resume padding. That's not going to help you. There is no real reward where you wrote this thing and people are going to see it. You're never going to get recognition, but you can't just have, like, how do you manage a structure where it's, it was really hard to find people to be managers of, of this, like, it's not even like you're working with the IQA. It's just the Quidditch post. Some people are going to read this, you know, you get, might get a hundred views, might get a couple thousand views and that's it. And, so, you know, it ended up, it was a constant struggle for years and years and years. And honestly, the only reason that it worked at that scale was Andy and Lindsay putting in 40 to 60 hours on their work week and another actual, like legitimately 40 hours a week on the Quidditch Post. Legitimately, they each put in 40 hours a week on average for years. They were the managers. They were the, like, everything. Um... I still don't know how they did it. 
and still mm-hmm. went through law school and still went through management uh, school for each of them. Um, but it they did, and there was some not great side effects. They you know they were really good at getting things done. Didn't always necessarily uh, do it in the most sort of uh, people friendly way all the time. But they did it, and they did like you know you can't. It's I I, I can't ima- I, I I still can't believe that a structure that was for a lot of the time you know five to six directors, fifty low level volunteers, and then just like a couple of managers. Like the having that like actually work was wild. Um, you know you think you're just a Quidditch thing that's just doing this for fun but like as you get to that scale you do have to be careful about a lot of things you do have to pay attention to like HR and harassment and you do have to pay attention to making sure that volunteers are being valued and heard and you do have to pay attention to making sure that you're actually getting content from different places and it's up to quality and that like you have a balance of, of news and it goes out of the right time and that the website is up to date and that and that and that and that and it's just like so much um so I'm proud of what we were all able to do, and that's really cool. And I, it was pretty inevitable, I think. We did our very best. We had multiple transition plans to try and figure out how it's going to happen when the four of us stepped out, and we hired different C-suite members in for different amounts of time. But really, once Lindsay and Andy, like, fully left, it, it went from 70 to 5 in a year. Um... And it exists now, and I'm happy that it exists, but it doesn't doesn't really exist much. <laughs> I think the average not, not the way every used, few no. months. Pardon? Not in no. the way it used. No. No. Um, and it's it is it's, it was it was an awesome journey. It's really interesting, and I think it's sort of indicative of a sort of more core underlying principle of Quidditch and Quidditch volunteering I think that I've learned is that it's not about what you can do for the volunteers and how you persuade them how you do that it's the level of volunteering in the sport is going to be reflective of the level of enthusiasm of people in Quidditch it's not that you can help Quidditch by promoting it it's that when Quidditch is excited and healthy the volunteers will come when there's a lot of people, but when in a pandemic times or in like, you know, times when there's a lull or times that people are not as interested, all of the volunteers are going to go to their NGBs and there's very, there's none left out. No one has any extra energy. They just trying to keep the Quidditch alive in their areas. Um, so I don't think it's a failing on the Quidditch post part that it's not as, as, as it's not, it, to some extent it is, but it's not, it's also a commentary on the level of how many volunteers and how excited people are to sink in these crazy amounts of hours into a sport. Yeah, I mean, overall, that's a pretty fair assessment of things. And sort of the way you've really talked about it there, and gone to the depth about it, it makes you kind of wonder how it ever happened in the first place and how it ever really properly functioned not in much the way that quidditch as a whole sport well it shouldn't really work but it does it's it's very similar um, yeah exactly <laughs> we, we really were publishing 
like three articles every day and they were fully copy edited, fully fact checked, fully like everything like photography, like people were getting credits and everything was like actually from multiple continents. It was like it was a really well humming machine that was held together by tape and glue, but like it was going. Um, And yeah, exactly like Quidditch, where (laughs) this should not work at this scale. Uh, with just a bunch of volunteers putting in this ridiculous amount of time, minus also the awesome people at USQ who are actually getting paid, and the people who have managed to make some money. Uh, shout out Jack, shout out people, suppliers, but um, it's still on the backs of volunteers who are putting in, you know, they do get stuff out of it, but they put in way more than they get out consistently. And it's wild that that still is a viable model years later. Yeah, definitely. Loving. Well, certainly why I got involved with Quidditch Post was I saw it as an outlet for me to talk about Quidditch and to have an opportunity for what I had to say about the sport be seen by a lot of people and be seen around the world. Um, And yeah, it was a very interesting experience for me to be a part of. And obviously it's it's partly why this now exists with Total Quidditch. Um, And I kind of needed that initial experience with uh, Quidditch Post um to then go on to this um but it was really interesting to see a group of people sort of try and make a professional publication work entirely online and yeah go through all the sort of necessary hoops to be sort of respected and to put out quality content um obviously depending on your opinion of the articles but yeah certainly a rewarding experience volunteer wise yeah, and I'm glad. I'm I'm happy to see a lot of form some former volunteers do their own media publications or go on to, you know, work in their fields out like for money outside of Quidditch or to, you know, be still working but for the IQA or like it's uh, it's cool to see people like you with podcasts that start are, are carrying on the torch. So yeah, kind of furthering your volunteering experience um talk about the the iqa now um you spent quite a a considerable amount of time uh volunteering with the iqa in various roles including gameplay director and also as a trustee uh you're also first chair for a year and then also vice chair as well so like what got you involved with the iqa and what do you feel you achieved in that time and what, what what did you get out of the experience um, I was looking to move possibly to the IQA, um, after a few years at Quidditch Post. Uh, I think I'd been there for three or four years, uh, March 2015 to about 2019 or so. Um, and I definitely saw the IQA as the place that I could have the biggest sort of impact on helping progress the sport. Uh, I had like some pretty grand ideas about, you know, sort of external outreach and uh, sort of creating opportunities for the sport and uh, really growing the game on a sort of like high level. And that didn't happen (laughs) at all. Like, I'm very happy that we did, but it's really interesting the expectations of what you think you want to do when you get there and then the realities of what you've got to get done. Um, The IQA, I'm actually really proud of, of, of of how far we've come. Um, there was definitely, I would say in a couple of years before I, before I arrived in the whole crop of trustees arrived, there was definitely some trouble, uh, some 
like, to be honest, like poor decision making. Um, and that looked like uh, Uganda. I don't really have to say anything more than Uganda. Yeah. And that looked like um, Alex Shear and Jack Leonard. And that looked like, um, you know, there is a, a number of, of things that weren't handled uh, as well as you would hope. Um, and so a lot of what we did as trustees for the first bit was really just solidifying sort of the decision-making process and solidifying the organization and rebuilding, sort of building this up to as much as we can and stabilizing it and getting a good base. And honestly, like the biggest, you know, uh, achievement is not a positive achievement for me <laughs> from the past two years. It's a lack of negative. Like we, I really think that in the two years that I was there or so, we didn't we didn't fuck up <laughs> again pardon the <laughs> french you can you can bleep that one out but i don't think i think that we made solid good choices to the best of our knowledge with good process listening to good people uh on pretty much all fronts you know things you can disagree with yes there's like obviously you know things that didn't quite go as well as we want or you know but we didn't have we didn't have a a, a new sort of that was just the IQ is stupid. Why did you do that? You know, we were able to empower the right people to be making decisions and trusting our volunteers to, you know, do the right thing. And, you know, just sort of we put out we had to put a lot of effort in as trustees into the operations side too. In theory, as a board, um, our main sort of goal is to do that sort of high level planning to do that strategic partnerships to do this sort of external outreach to do sort of governance of the sport and but in reality just way that volunteering works in quidditch is that we had a lot more to do with the operations figuring out like rule books and like the events directly we had multiple trustees that were also directors of the operational departments um and so the fact that we were able to go through and with incorporation with you know a lot of the different things that we were able to do. Um, definitely proud of 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 that. Uh, my role, um, my role was to. I would say that my role was to empower people and to sort of be a guiding voice of uh, of of cooperation and reason on the different places that I was. You know, I was not the smartest person in the room. I didn't know the most about any of the things, and that was great. My only real decision as gameplay director my only real i was the the best and the most impactful decision i ever made was hiring mcp michael clark pulner as uh head of rulebook and just you know i trust you you are the best rules person that exists uh you're gonna put together a committee of, of people to design to do the rulebook and i will you know discuss it with you and help you along and enable you and empower you and you're gonna do that i am not gonna make those choices if you need a tiebreaker vote i'll be there for you but you are doing that um and i'm gonna make sure the trustees don't get involved and that's all you and i think that it worked really well i really like the way the rulebook came out um i think that you know there's some things that are not they're gonna take some time to use to like the new starting procedure but i think that that's just uh you know that we had the latitude to make that sort of big change but doing it from a community-centered and just from the pure sort of gameplay and safety 
like just being able to do that, I think was great. Um, and then the trustees as as chair for a year and then vice chair for a year, I think it was again, just like, you know, making sure that everyone's voices were heard and that we were able to work cohesively as a as as a unit of trustees and have a, a sort of a clear, clear path to making decisions. And, you know, that was I, I honestly don't think I did all that much. I didn't do much like, you know, I, I helped on a lot of things. Uh, obviously, like there's like a bunch of stuff, but like my main role wasn't wasn't I really I'm, I'm just proud and happy to have had so many hardworking colleagues that that did a lot of the work. Uh, and I just sort of was there to, you know, mediate and, and make sure that that everyone was empowered to be doing the things yeah, that they should be doing. kind of ticking over, really. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Now, that's really interesting to hear, because I think with the IQA, it's always been in a bit of a difficult position where, obviously, when people volunteer within Quidditch, they first look to their team and kind of, what can I do for my team? And then people look a bit further afield. Oh, what can I do at a tournament? Can I be a ref? Can I be a tournament director? Can I, what can I do at a tournament? And then looking at a bigger level, what can I do in my NGB? What can I do? So all kind of, it's this kind of different circles that kind of go out and out and out. And that very outer circle is the IQA. And kind of getting people to build up the experience, but also, I guess, the confidence to put themselves out there and volunteer with the IQA is a massive thing. And it kind of, it for a lot of people, it kind of gets left sort of, well, oh, it, it, gets, it gets left out after a while. Um, so trying to motivate people to get into those roles is quite difficult. But obviously, once you got into that position, you're able to sort of steer the IQA into a better direction um, from where it kind of was, I think back to sort of 2015, 2016, when there's a bit of like a power struggle between them and USQ and still sort of trying to establish themselves. But now I feel like they're kind of stepping out more and making responsible choices and really kind of establish themselves as the, the global body for the sport. Yeah. Um, it is all like that was definitely experience that carried over from Quidditch poses. How do you motivate people? How do you build a culture? How do you build fine volunteers for all these positions? And when, yeah, they are not the first choice. And that was a huge struggle and continues to be is that people who volunteer at a high level of the IQA are also definitely volunteering for their NGB or team. And like the risk of burnout is real. And how do you manage that? Because, you know, we would love to have more sort of new, fresh volunteers that are just, you know, you really don't have to have a ton of experience to do valuable work at QA. There's a ton of really cool initiatives that just need, like, driven, motivated people to do it, to help grow the game in different, like, even different continents, to help. You can have so much impact, you know, with, like, with youth Quidditch, with, like, all of these different things. Um, but, yeah, it's just, it's definitely really hard to find people who actually have the time to put in the real effort when a lot of the people who do eventually come to Quidditch sort of IQA do it feel like, feel like they sort of have to to keep the sport, you know, to really be, you know, this is sort of like almost an obligation, which is not sort of like a healthy place to be. Um, mm-hmm. We made some progress on that, and I'm happy that, like, we are getting, like, you know, 
we done it, the IQA as I I was leaving was doing a big restructure, which I'm uh, to sort of refocus on streamlining the organizational structure and empowering more low level volunteers, um, and sort of make the management part of it easier. Um, and so yeah, I think that that's sort of the the big struggle is that yeah, you don't you don't get many IQA only volunteers. You don't get people, many people who are just excited because they're either to start out with for the first couple of years, people are intimidated. They're like, Oh no, we can't, I can't just go volunteer for FIFA. Yeah. <laughs> like, Oh my God. what? It's unheard then, of the other sport really, isn't it? So yeah. And then you realize that we are just a bunch of, volunteers. Like, it's just a bunch of another bunch of volunteers. We're not special. We're not any different, but by the time that people realize that they're already neck deep in commitments for their teams and their NGBs. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a challenge. Mm-hmm, for sure. It's good good to discuss it here. Um, so we'll look at the summer of 2018, uh, which is a good, good time for many, I'm sure. Um, you, you headed out to, to Europe uh, for the World Cup in Florence, which you attended as a referee um and ultimately ended up being in the ref crew for the final between belgium and the us so what was it like refereeing at the tournament having played for canada in 2016 but then this time being a player uh, sorry a, a referee and uh, i was really what was it like refereeing the final itself that was awesome an amazing experience uh, i went there uh support my partner katie who was a chaser for team canada and also to to referee uh and you know i just loved it uh i do and i enjoy refereeing like i i actively enjoy it i think it's it's a honestly it's the same role i have as on the board is i am there to keep things going and keep people you know calm and i if anyone who's had me as a referee i'm definitely the type of person who will explain to you what's happening and like hey look that was fine contact but just time you know you got to be careful your arm was slipping around the back a little bit um and in those quiet moments, like helping, you know, people to know when they're getting close to towing the rules and then just being, you know, very like direct and clear uh, and decisive as necessary. But like just in that atmosphere of World Cup, it was it de- definitely did feel like the culmination of like of a lot of years of refereeing and just sort of, you know, the have my I honestly like the, the World Cup finals, all like the two amazing memories for me there were. Uh, the exhibition game uh, in the middle of Florence on the sand pit. Oh, yeah. Um, head refereeing that game between Australia and Italy. Just like this amazing, like, you're, I, who would have thought that, you know, someone would be, you'd be playing this, like, thousand-year-old, like, pit in the middle of Florence with this, like, amazing architecture all around you with these, like, uh, fans and just random spectators in the stands. Like, that was just an incredible incredible experience and then yeah just getting to to the finals um the one i the thing i remember most i'm i'm super lucky i'm appreciative that they gave me that slot um and i you know in my first time doing international refereeing at all uh and so getting well i think i'd refereed at a, a tournaments in other countries but my first time at like an iqa event um and the most sort of I really enjoy listening and, and hearing about all the other top referees and how their styles are and what can I learn from them. 
but the biggest like the biggest moment the most like weird moment there uh memorable was when uh louis uh threw his bludger at the quaffle when the u.s had thrown it and hit the quaffle out of bounds and nobody we were really like okay whose quaffle is it because according (laughs) to the rules according to the rules the last person to touch it was the u.s so it should be belgium's but also belgium definitely did intentionally hit the quaffle just not with their body and went out of bounds so who should it be um i actually don't remember which way the call went uh i think that we gave it I think that we gave it back to the U.S. Yeah, sounds right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, there's like that. There was like five really experienced referees. Like, okay, what do we do? This <laughs> like that was that was just a, that was just a funny moment because that's not, you know, it was the first year where that's an, a big issue where there's this hard hard out of bounds. Mm. I think, uh, and yeah, no, that was just an intro. It was just also awesome. Like as a referee, you aren't you're your first focus is refereeing the game, but also in the back of your mind, you're like, I am not even front row seats. I am in this game, this gold medal game, like seeing these top players doing cool shit, (laughs) right? You're, (laughs) you're, you're, you're witnessing like top level Quidditch. Uh, And so that's not your first focus, but it, it, every month in a while during a stoppage, you're like, wow, that was actually really cool. That was sick. Um, And so, yeah, that was just an awesome you know, awesome experience, and I'm I'm proud that I got to be on that crew, and grateful that I was given that chance. Mm-hmm, for sure. The yeah, I think that's something I really relate to as a referee myself. Is just yeah, as like a fan of the sport, and you're like right in the middle of the action. Um, and like you might not appreciate it at the time, but is there's every so often you go, wow, this is amazing. And like when I tell people about Quidditch, like outside the sport. I'll mention, oh, I, I was a referee in this big final or whatever. And people go, wow, that's amazing. And uh, it, it's something that you can really kind of put on your highlights of your, your Quidditch CV, I guess. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, so following the tournament, uh, you also traveled around Europe playing in various uh, tournaments uh, across the continent, uh, including playing in the Quidditch Premier League for the then reigning champions, the West Midlands Revolution. So tell us about your travels, but I guess especially QPL, it's an area I'm quite interested in. Um, how did you find uh, these experiences? Yeah, no, that was that was just an amazing experience. I loved, I loved that summer. After World Cup, we just took, you know, train ride after train ride, going from city to city, sort of timing it with these fantasy tournaments or like just hanging out with the with random Quidditch people or or just like, you know... Uh, I was just like really cool experiences all the way through Belgium, through Germany, through the UK, through just everywhere. Um, uh, other than other, my favorite tournaments, um, other than QPL, which was also excellent, was um, went to two of the three best fantasies I've ever been to. Or I guess two of the top four. Top four fantasies I've ever been to are Snow Cup in the US. Uh, which is sort of this like um, New Year's Eve, like amazing world US wide mm, fantasy. Then there's uh, Soul Snitch, which is in Canada and is uh, this like weekend long camping uh, fantasy. 
and then the two in 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 Europe, which are sort of um, actually inspired Solzhenitsch. Uh, well, the one that inspired Solzhenitsch, uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, is such an amazingly fun tournament. Um, so being able to be there for that and pe- playing with all of these like top European people that I've never met and like just like being camping and like all that sort of stuff was super cool. And I think I was on a team with Albert and just like picking his brain and like I just love that. Uh, and then Wild Links, uh, Wild Links Fantasy in Germany was so fun. Like just like e- even more pure fun than Gentleman maybe. Like just like this like. It was, uh, I think, maybe the first year of the tournament, and they catered, like, breakfasts and lunches, and, like, it was, like, a multi-day camping thing, and uh, <laughs> every team had to come up with a, a funny cheer, uh, and we were judged on that as well. It was just, like, a really cool, really fun atmosphere, and I'm just, like, again, like, playing with all these, like, German players that I've never, you know, plus meeting up with old old people like like uh, Leander Troll or Leander Lele from he originally started playing in in UBC and now plays for Team Germany. And so getting to meet up with him and hang out and play together was awesome. Um, and then up to, yeah, Quidditch Premier League. I'm so happy that Jack decided that, yeah, sure, whatever. You can have random Canadians join your, <laughs> join your team. You don't live anywhere near any area, but, you know, go ahead. <laughs> sure. Um... Oh, that was so much fun. We went to, I think, two fixtures plus the final. Um, and, yeah, no, top. Like, really, really well organized. Appreciated, like, the full effort that they went into branding. Um, and the organization, the structure. And it was great. I really enjoyed stepping into that. Um, really good level of competition. Um, I had a lot of fun. Um Disappointed that we didn't uh, go further. I think we came third or fourth, maybe. I don't actually remember. <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah. Uh, but no, it was it was, a, it was really fun. Uh, I liked it a lot. Um, I think that they're, yeah, definitely really good players in that league. Um, and I think that like the obvious comparison is MLQ, who have a couple of years' experience and a much larger player pool to draw from. Uh, but I think that QPL is definitely like, especially with their new European, with the European expansion, I think that it's like a really exciting um, league opportunity that I hope continues and grows for a long time to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as it certainly sounds like you enjoyed yourself. And it's, it's really good to hear that. The, I guess coming from Canada and kind of not having too many opportunities to really kind of travel around and kind of, meet all these different communities of Quidditch, Quidditch players, suddenly being in Europe where things are just like, I don't know, two, three hours away from each other. Uh, and then, yeah, be able to attend all these tournaments in kind of quick succession. And uh, yeah, obviously you really kind of made the most of your time over there. Oh, 100%. It was amazing. <laughs> Super. Um, so we, we talked a little bit about fancy tournaments there. And this is kind of a real, I guess, area of expertise for you. Um, so you have a really impressive record as a, fa- as a fancy tournament uh, GM, or general manager or captain, as we call them in the UK, um, and also as a player, too. You showed me your record uh, 
off uh well while we weren't recording um there's like 13 first places seven second places and then on two occasions you finish third or worse which is pretty stunning uh, if i do say so myself so yes what is your drafting process when it comes to fancy tournaments and kind of what's your process before the draft and also during the draft sort of how do you construct these successful teams i love fantasy i came from a place of like before quidditch i wrote about fantasy fantasy hockey like i like that was like my first paying like sports job was like managing this fantasy hockey prospect site um and so the idea that there was fantasy and quidditch where not only could you draft the teams but they would actually play was just wild to me. Like you couldn't, you you know, you're doing an NHL draft or a like a cricket draft or a Premier League draft. You don't, you know, you have no idea how well that team would go together. When Quidditch, you actually play the fantasy, which is amazing to me uh, as a rookie or like a like first couple years. And I ended up, you know, trying to take all the lessons I learned from the fantasy hockey scene uh, and applying it there. And I think that what differentiates me from a lot of GMs is actually that I am dumb, that I am dumb and I am aware that I am dumb and I would like to not trust myself to make choices. I am, I do not know all the players. I know a bunch of players somewhat well or some not well, and I'm definitely biased uh, and I would like to win. And so I should not trust myself. And so what I've ended up doing the sort of like secret key to my success is I have, you know, I, I did it sort of manually for a while, then I created a spreadsheet and I would, you know, make a really simple layout for people to put in their own opinions on every player in the draft. Um, and they don't know everyone, that's fine. I, I want to know on a one to five scale, how good is this player and how confident you are in, in your ranking. And then I would take a weighted average of 5 to 15 people, depending on the size of the draft. 5 to 15 sort of people I consulted. I thought, you know, some people of different genders, some people of different experiences levels, some people of different, like, areas. So I could cover every... I wanted to have two opinions, at least, on every single player in the draft other than my own. And then I would take a weighted average of all their rankings and construct the draft list from that with no input from me. I would take... You know, I my opinion had zero impact on my draft lists ever. Um, and then I would not let myself ever take a player that wasn't within roughly the same tier. You know, if I'm at a spot in the draft and I've, you know, look at my, my list, my list for different positions, you know, there's a, a couple of tier twos on the board, a couple of tier threes, a couple of tier three and a halfs. You know, I wouldn't let myself take anyone other than a tier two or tier two and a half. I'll choose who I want at that point. I'll choose, you know, who I think fits my roster the best. Um, but, like, really just limiting, you know, not letting myself, you know, make dumb choices because, you know, I really like whatever. You know, you, you still do that every once in a while. But, um, yeah, I think that a lot of people, like, the, the obvious thing is that you pick the players that you know. That, that's what, that everyone does that. Mm. Um, and so I think that the biggest differentiator is I don't pick the players I know. Uh, I think I have like a 75% win rate in tournaments that I don't know anyone. 
<laughs> where I've literally met one to five people in the whole tournament ever. Uh, I won like hella. I like I won a Northeast Cinco de Mayo. Uh, I actually I, one of the ones I've lost bad was in uh, was uh, Valentine uh, in the UK. That one didn't go well. But like a bunch of these, I won a bunch of tournaments where I I knew nobody um, because that process works just as well if I'm in Vancouver or anywhere else. The only difference is I need to. It's hard to know who to ask. That's the hard problem, you know. Uh, you want to make it easy on people and not like both people too much. But uh, sometimes like I don't know that many like super- I have to ask people about who to ask in the area if it's like in a place that I really am not familiar with. Because, um, yeah, it's your information is only as good as who you get it from. Um, but you sort of can average out people's. The idea is that, you know, everyone that I ask is biased. But by averaging out a bunch of people with different biases, overall, the averages of their opinions is closer to the truth than any one person's, even if in theory that one person does know more overall than anyone else. Um, And so that's sort of that that draft sheet is sort of the secret sauce for me. Um, And I I think I've shared a version of it at some point and I'd be down to I I've meant to write up a big article on how to pro to do that. Uh, I never got around to it. Um, but during the draft, I definitely, I have a, from that sheet is automatically calculated the scarcity of each position and gender, uh, and how many people of each tier are in the genders, or how many people of each tier for each gender exist in the, in the draft. So you can see, okay, there's a ton of top beaters. And then nothing else after that. There is no depth, or there is, you know, a one and only one top keeper, and otherwise there's like twelve middling keepers. And so as you're going through, you're making your decision on who's going to be there. And what's interesting is that well, the part that I struggle with is I don't think that I rank people the same way as other people. So it's a mix of if I just took people the best player available every time. Uh, that may not actually work as well for me because I could have gotten that player in round six because nobody knows them because they're from like the like a different region. And uh, but I also really don't want to chance it. So, you know, having that balance is sometimes tough. Um, and yeah, like, you know, not being afraid to bear the strategy for in the draft is there is no there is no magic strategy. You're you're playing to construct. You're going to construct the best roster you can, given the genders and players available to you in your position in the draft order, and that changes every time. But as long as you do all the prep, as long as you are not making any choices in the draft, you're not doing the rankings. Like you're not like trying to really decide on who's better or worse. As long as that's all pre-done, then you're going to be in a really good spot. And for me, my philosophy is that I draft to win, and then I play for fun. So. I I am uber competitive in the draft. I will. I don't care. I people people have left me like Katie, my partner, and I will not draft her if she's not the right person to draft. <laughs> uh, I will. I will make tra- if there's trades. I will trade and take advantage of people who don't know what they're doing. I will. I'm gonna draft to win. But then whether I'm the actual captain on the day of or whether someone else is, you play whatever position you want. Everyone, we're gonna roll the lines. We are going to give everyone all the fun experiences that they possibly can. Fantasies are about fun. And what I see a lot of the time 
is sort of the opposite, which seems weird to me, is that people draft for fun. They just draft their friends, they just draft like based on a certain aesthetic, which is fine, and that's their choice. But then they play super competitively and like they <laughs> lean on like a couple of like star players that get a lot of minutes. Uh, I would rather, you know, no one's experience is affected by how intensely I'm drafting uh, other than the other GMs. And then, but once we're in it, it's it's about it's about your experience in the day of and winning is an important part of that but it's a fantasy so it's you know i want to roll the lines i want to give people opportunities i want to give people if you want to play a different position area play before that's great um and despite doing that yeah i've won a majority of my tournaments and i think i've come top two in like 80 or 90 percent of them uh even against teams that were just leaning on their star players uh, so yeah that's uh I don't know if you got any more questions than that, but I love fantasy. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's it's really interesting to hear about. Um, I'm currently preparing to draft a, a fantasy team again for the first time in a long time, which I'm very excited about. So it's interesting to really hear about your process. And I've obviously heard about it before, um, but to really get the, the in-depth details, fantastic. And uh, yeah, I think in a way, like, when you look at professional sports, uh, like a lot of fantasy sports, say, I don't know, if I'm doing the, the, the fancy Premier League of the football, I can look at last season's stats and go, OK, well, this person scored this amount of goals. OK, I'm going to put them in my team because I think they're going to score lots of goals. But we don't have that raw data in Quidditch. So be able to, yeah, have this hive mind of people um, that will give you their ratings and yeah their trust of those ratings and then sort of commodifying that and over time creating that average so then you have you're essentially creating data um in a way and then yeah putting it together and i really like your idea there of drafting competitively and then playing for fun because well i find with the best fancy teams the teams that tend to win these tournaments well, they're they're either, I don't know, especially in the smaller ones, you you draft that team and that team is amazing. It's going to win, like regardless, or it's either very talented. It's put itself in a very good position to win. So you've done kind of the hard work beforehand, like putting it together, and and then putting those players in that position to win. All of a sudden, people really enjoy that. And having been on one of your, uh, well. Not one of your winning teams, but uh, I was on uh, Team U co-GM'd for West Fantasy in 2019, and we came second. Um, and I went super late in that draft, and I was like, not many of these GMs are going to know who I am. But then you you put me on, on the team that you made, and I was like, okay, Austin knows who I am. And I've gone super late, so this must be a really good team. And I had very little idea about most of the players in that team. But as you said, it was it was super fun, and I had a great time. And though we didn't win, like everyone got a chance to play a lot of minutes, they got to try different things out. It was a great experience. So yeah, I think it, it's a really really interesting area to look at within Quidditch. Yeah, I personally blame you for losing that, losing that tournament for me. <laughs> How dare you not carry that team on your back? <laughs> I waited so long to draft you, and you could have, you know, uh, you got a you got a yeah. hero ball. Come on, man. <laughs> no, I was I. Rose, I think Emma Shroma Chow is on that team, who is another like super unknown, the the small Canadian beater. Uh, there's you know a whole bunch of 
people on that team that I think most people didn't know. I I think did you you guys made finals though, right? Oh yeah, we went always the final, and then Grant Rose just put his team on his back, and oh, it was an incredible yeah. performance. Like couldn't have really followed him to be honest. But yeah, sort of that. That's I'm I, in the. Uh, Looking at his data is interesting. I definitely, I see it more, I see it definitely as a, yeah, we can't do, I would rather do Moneyball style, like, analytics to figure out, you know, a lot of this. But instead, you have to do basically scouting. Like, I'm basically, I try to put together basically a scouting team, like a scouting, like a, you'd imagine a Premier League or like a a professional team does. Uh, But my scouts are just random people I ask for help. Um, And I haven't thought, I have thought of it, but I haven't done it of, like, amalgamating all my sheets. And trying to get a, a true weighted average over time, I sort of try to do that for the um, the like all time fantasy draft. But then I sort of banned that idea. I did end up asking. I think I got I got think rankings from about like twenty eight people um, for that draft because it covered literally the whole world. Uh, but I haven't tried amalgamating because it's it's hard because different contexts have different players and there's often not enough overlap in one area there's enough overlap that you can average out people's rankings because you can some some people might be really too nice and some people might be too harsh but when you do an average and there's enough overlap between all the rankers it works but if there's not enough overlap of what who each ranker knows like in a it doesn't work and over time people's skill levels change so to get enough sample of data i'd have to use three years of data but who a player is three years ago from now is not relevant at all in Quidditch. Yeah, um, that's true. But yeah, uh, yeah, I'm definitely. <laughs> I won almost every fantasy tournament in the Northwest for a couple of years, and then a couple of people decided to actually like put a lot of effort into and like start asking people and having a ranking system, and then I started to lose, which <laughs> I'm happy about. I it means people are like, I people are putting some effort into like like thinking meta thinking about how to draft um mm. and you know i i i think it's uh i think it's a really cool um side of quidditch that's just very different i like it a lot yeah for sure no i think it, it's great when captains really do put that effort in as well but i'm sure you'll experience and a lot of people experience in quidditch where you're at a fantasy tournament and you have that captain who doesn't put the time in and I don't think they draft their friends and they, they don't they don't put together a cohesive group and then you play with them and go this is awful because uh we, we i don't know we've got all of these chasers but we don't have any beaters or we've got x amount of this gender but not enough of this gender um uh, so yeah the more people put that thought in to the drafting then the tournament itself can be much more enjoyable yeah um what i really liked one the the downside the downside of like the downside of my putting in that effort when some people don't is that there are teams that we do crush every once in a while and that's not super fun for that team so ironically for the only fantasy tournament i've run we didn't have a draft. <laughs> <laughs> we did it very much like America definitely has the capitalist style. Some of the some of the European tournaments have more of this, the communist style of the we're going to decide what the teams are and then assign captains. And we definitely did that for my tournament where I, we had the hive mind of all the captains of all the like local teams. 
put together their lists and then we assign six different teams and then the captain and then we assigned gms gms drafted their teams so gms got random order based on their actually based on how skilled they were as players um got to choose which team they want to be gm of and then they had to make two trades that was the rules everyone had to make two trades at least so that they could put a touch on them and also to just in case that we randomly assign people with each other that were not wanting to be on the same team for personal reasons that would normally get noticed in a draft. Um, so that was really fun. Every game, they st- everyone still felt really connected to their teams and their teammates, but like almost every game was snitch range uh, in the whole tournament. So that was uh, <laughs> ironically uh, not having a draft was actually probably more fun and was we did like a feedback survey and it was actually like very well received. Mm-hmm. It was a kind of a different spin on it, which obviously worked out pretty well. Um, so looking at the summer of 2019, uh, you played for West Canada at the inaugural IQA Pan American Games in Richmond, Virginia. So from kind of your perspective, what was that tournament like? And how did it work regarding splitting Canada in two? Uh, is uh, this something you'd like to see more of going forward? Or is it kind of an experiment that didn't quite work out? I thought it was I thought it was really good, honestly. Um, in Canada, there's all I don't know if it's it's not obvious because no, you're not from Canada, but there's definitely a competition between East and West. A little bit of you know a lot of the organizers of Quidditch Canada have traditionally been from the East, and sort of there's been a perception, at least from a number of years ago, where a lot of the focus of Quidditch Canada was on the East, and all the star players got more recognition when they were from the East because that sort of was the big hub. Um, and so people in Western Canada, I think, definitely relish the fact, the chance to have their own team, because traditionally, at least 75% of every team has been from the East, um, which does make sense. It's there. It's a little more outsized than the ratio of teams, but it's there are more teams in the East, so it does make some sense. But there's definitely people on the in the West who are very stoked to have have uh, a Western Canadian team and see what we can do. Um, and I think it was great. I think that uh there i think that we do have less depth because there's less teams so the sort of you know there's just less opportunity for competition and so there's just not as many players so uh i would say that percentile wise we matched up really well um but like you know the 20th best player when you have 20 teams it's going to be better than the 20th best player when you have three teams which is an exaggeration um, when you have three teams to draw from versus 20 teams to draw from. Um, so we knew that it would be rough, but like we, I think, played really well and supported each other and had a really close knit, you know, what people on the team were not worried about in that moment of the tournament. Like, you know, it was, it was about the team, not like impressing and trying to get a test spot for Team Canada or showing the East or like, you know, it was about the team, which was super cool. Um, and I really enjoyed that experience. Uh, and we beat Mexico once and we beat Eastern, we beat Eastern Canada once, which was like, honestly, the highlight for sure. They were, they, I think that they had an expectation that they should beat us. Uh, and we played every single game with them close and we won one of them. Um, and we definitely showed that, uh, we were definitely at that same level of competition as them. 
um, and then being able to play Team Team USA a couple times. Um, that was a really fun experience that was also hard. <laughs> like that that was really I really, really relish the chance to test myself and test our team against uh, some of the best that the sport can offer and see where we match up and see where we don't. I honestly think there's a lot of places we did match up really well. Um, and, you know, they're, you know, awesome. But if you're not intimidated by them, they're just players that are really good and athletic. Um, and you can, they'll still fall for fakes. They will still make, you know, if you execute a perfect play against them, it'll still work. Um, we lost by a lot, obviously, but like, uh, there was definitely periods in the game where we were staying toe to toe with them, uh, where our players were able to, to, to beat theirs. Um, and so that was, I think a really confidence booting, boosting experience that the West wouldn't have gotten, um, in a, in a combined team. Um, I actually would have rather that the U S split up, um, and have, maybe four regions, maybe north, like west, west, north, east, south. Um, yeah, eight regions might be too much, but I think that they're, they, they see it more as we have our national team, we're going to test. We're just going to, we might win every game by a lot, but this is sort of a, a good cohesion building, line building yep. test. Um, Obviously, the uh, actually the biggest thing that was unfortunate was that we weren't able to get any of the South American teams up. Pan American Games, I think, would be so much fun uh, when when we get to go to South America to play, um, and we can have like there's some really good athletes on the on the Latin American and South American teams that don't really get any visibility at all because a lot of them aren't English first language and aren't as involved in the national scene. And they haven't had the exposure in competition, so they're not as polished, but they're really good athletes. Um, and so I'm excited to, at one point, uh, it was just us, U.S., like the two Canadian teams, U.S. and Mexico. Uh, but I'm hopeful that Pan Ams next year, or at least like the one after that, we can involve like a number of like Brazil, Peru, Argentina, um, who have active NGBs and active national teams, but weren't able to make it up for that one. Um, maybe maybe holding it uh, in Mexico or or south of there would let that be uh, an easier time for them. Well, I guess it's really interesting to hear. Because, um, yeah, kind of looking from the outside in, it seemed like a tournament that's kind of cobbled together within like a few months it's quite last minute in many ways try, trying to sort it all out um obviously it's great that it happened and kind of to have the first one and kind of then to just just to make it exist um yeah give like north american and well eventually central and south american teams this extra opportunity to compete outside the world cup and, uh, yeah it'll be interesting to see how it develops in the next few years um whether say the next one uh, yeah, as you mentioned, having more regional teams, I, I think that'd be really cool to have. Say within America, you have Team, US, team USA as it is, but also you have yeah, sort of the West region team and then the Southwest or whatever. And it might be a bit strange that those teams will do quite well, but it's introducing more people to that higher level of gameplay, introducing more people to better competition, so that everyone develops. So 
even say you know, a Brazil or a Peru or whatever turning up, they might lose to say I don't know a West American team or a Southwest team, but they're going to learn from that experience. They're, they're going to become better Quidditch players. So it's going to be really interesting to see the direction that Pan American Games takes in the future. Yeah, I yeah the first one like it was really well run as well as it can be, but it was a four team tournament. There's not too much more. There's it's a it's a four team tournament. You can do as much as you can with a four team tournament, but it's really only four teams. Mm. And I think that it's the most important part was that it happened and it went well for what it was. The 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 real the real key is having it continue and grow. Like that's the you know this was the sort of testing ground. The the biggest effort is like. It, some cliche about most important step is the first one or the hardest step is the first one. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think that, you know, it's true. And that the, the next ones are going to be the most, you know, where we see the growth and the, the really competitive tournaments. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Uh, we're going to jump ahead to the mailbag section now, as you kind of come towards the end of the episode. Uh, so we've got a few questions here sent in by members of the community for Austin to answer for us. Uh, starting off uh, this one, who would you say is your toughest opponent? <sighs> I guess either a snitch or a player within this. Uh-huh. Uh, first one that comes to mind uh, is someone on Rain City named Ross Schramm von Haupt. I'm going to probably pr- mispronounce that name, but uh, Rain name. City Raptors. Uh, he is a Raptor. Like as a as a human, just like like long limbed, tall, like very large boy. Um, and my play style as a chaser is definitely facilitator. I'll drive and sort of dodge through people, but I'm not gonna truck through someone. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm I'm reasonably quick on my feet. And so Ross is the only person that consistently tackles me, and I don't like it. <laughs> like I, I can usually get rid of the ball quick enough, or I can usually like, you know, dodge around. Either they're either they're too big and I dodge around them, or they're too small and I can pass over them. Ross is huge and fast, so he <laughs> can he sprints up into me and gets his arms in the way of my passes, and then just tackles me, and I'm just I don't like it. <laughs> Ross, you're you're too good. <laughs> well, that's a good choice. Uh, what's the hardest attribute to game plan against in the Canadian game? Hardest attribute to game plan against? Um, it's, it's the, I think the hardest thing is going up against teams that have cohesive, well put together strategies that are just different from what you're used to. And that you could probably shut down if you knew about them and have played against them. But they're not knowing their tendencies and not knowing like not having real game experience against them um, can make things really hard that I think is pretty unique because in most countries, I guess the U.S. is an exception. Like even in the U.S., like the top teams will play each other before nationals. Usually like there's now heroes versus villains. There's now, you know, a couple of these in the U.K. I'm sure they to play reasonably often, at least at like, you know, one or two. Uh, but we don't see Valhalla until or Guelph until nationals ever. And so, you know, I think that the way that our team works a lot is 
we do have some tendencies we can game plan around people teams but that doesn't necessarily go as well uh when you <laughs> you only see them once ever um so it's not any specific thing it's just this this lack of familiarity which makes things hard to game plan against yeah of course like making adjustments on the fly based on how the other team's playing and yeah adapting to that mm-hmm. uh what advice would you give to someone starting out as a head referee a mix of two things that are almost opposites one it doesn't matter you're you're gonna you're gonna miss calls and the, you're going to screw up a game and cause one team to win when they shouldn't at least once in your career. It's going to happen. It's a game. It doesn't matter. You just let it, like, do your best in the moment every time, but realize that you are a volunteer with no training, refereeing a really complicated sport, and you're going to screw up. It's great. That's fine. Just, like, be aware that you're going to screw up, and everyone else screws up too, and it's okay. Um, on the flip side of that, do take it, you know, it doesn't matter, but it matters to you. So try and, you know, do study the rules, do present yourself in a professional way, do put the effort that you can. Most people that I meet fall too far on one side or the other. They don't care about refing at all. They're just doing it because they have to, and they don't put into the work. They don't, they're not professional. They don't, um... They don't even know the rules necessarily entirely themselves, or they're really trying hard to be a referee and they put so much pressure on themselves. It's their first game, they're so nervous and they have a hard time processing because when you're in that state of, uh, it's called physiological arousal is the like official medical term where um, different people have different reactions to high and low levels of physiological arousal where you're either lazy and tired or you're in a calm and operating, like, high-functioning state. Or when you're high physiological arousal, you're either doing really well and into it, or you're just so stressed and anxious that you can't deal. So there is no sort of advice that works for all people, because you'll either be one of those two, and just if you're one of those high-anxiety people, realize, yeah, what I said about it, it, it's fine. Everyone is going to screw up. No one here is good, and no one that is good started out good without prior refereeing experience and people are just happy to have a referee that is going to try their best and if you're and then the other the other side of it is yeah like it is really important to uh know the rules be professional sort of just paying attention to other referees and what they do and what you like and don't like about them um and yeah your job is just to adjudicate the rules and to uh, make the flow of the game stay flowy. Um, yeah, that's about it. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's good. Good summary of things. Uh, what's your favorite place you've been to for a tournament, either in Canada or outside of Canada? Mm-hmm. Florence and that, that sort of really old pit in the middle of like downtown was the most amazing single place that I've, I've been a part of a game, for sure. Um, favorite, other favorite places I've traveled to, just Europe and... Oh, oh, this is... The, my, the one that was maybe the most fun, like, just an incredible experience, was uh, Mexico asked me to come and referee their nationals. 
because they didn't have enough referees. So me and a few other international referees flew down to Mexico and they were just like so excited for us to be there. They hadn't really interacted with like they like just like interacted with a lot of like um, experienced Quidditch people. So they really had an outsized idea of how confident we were going to be and looked up to us in a way that maybe we didn't deserve. Uh, but like it was just such a fun, fun, fun experience uh, playing in we refereed in Cretaro outside of Mexico City. Uh, and I loved all of the players and volunteers and organizers there. And I hope that we helped them out and maybe advance the sport a bit because uh, they just don't have a lot of opportunities to go and play people outside of Mexico. Um, so that that was maybe the most fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, place. Yeah, sounds like really kind of wholesome experience. Um, so our final question here. Uh, what advice slash like inspiration would you give to people to get involved with the IQA? Um, don't be intimidated. Um, don't be like it is it is a place that if you can dedicate yourself and that make that sort of like not an overwhelming commitment, but like your sort of uh, your focus, if you can step away from other responsibilities and just be in the IQA and have something that you're passionate about, you know, don't force yourself to. But if you really care about youth Quidditch or if you really care about diversity, equity, inclusion, if you really care about uh, the rules, you can make an impact on the whole of Quidditch, the whole world uh, through the IQA in a way that doesn't exist really in other opportunities in Quidditch. Um, And all it really takes is that you care and you have some time and you're not burnt out and you're like wanting to put that effort in. Uh, Whether or not you've played for, you know, you probably should play, if you're doing a rules thing, you should have played for a little while for sure. But if you're wanting to do, you know, again, youth Quidditch or something, it's about your passion and your, skills not about your quidditch experience so don't worry about you know being intimidated to join this iqa or like you know national international governing body we're just another group of like volunteers that are trying to get things done and we would love love for you to join us i say us even though i'm not with the iq anymore <laughs> but <laughs> yeah not a reflex i guess <laughs> super that's a, that's a really nice way to finish this episode uh we're gonna wrap it up there it, well, it's been quite a long episode in the end but i think austin that really speaks to you and everything that you've done within quidditch um there's so many different avenues and areas to explore um and you you've really taken all the opportunities available to you um it's been fantastic to hear about those experiences that you've had so thank you very much for your time thank you i'm gonna say one last thing just because that reminded me and I, I didn't get a chance to say this to all of my fellow Quidditch obsessives out there, if you haven't had the chance to step away from volunteering for like a number of months, please do. Like I was so burnt out and I am now ready to go again. And the world will not fall apart. Your NGB will not stop existing when you stop volunteering for a few months. Uh, everyone, everyone that I've met in high level volunteering is burnt out and everyone needs a break. So it's worth it it really is (laughs) thank you for having me i really enjoyed it uh and uh i just had to get that last uh last call out there (laughs) 
for sure, for sure. It's a, it's a pretty important message to to give to our listeners. That's fantastic. Uh, so we hope that all of you who have listened to this episode have certainly got to this point of the episode have enjoyed what Austin's had to say. I certainly have. Uh, if you want to stay up to date with future episodes of the Total Quidditch podcast, please give the Total Quidditch Facebook page a like. We'll be announcing upcoming guests on there and, of course, giving you a chance for you to send in more of your mailbag questions. So, until next time, keep yourself safe and live the game. Goodbye.